Welcome to the Conservative Progress Digital Media Review with me, Jason McKenzie, and my guests, Alan O'Kelly from Conservative Progress and Mark Wallace this week from Conservative Home. We're looking at three pieces, one from CapEx, one from Conservative Home itself, and one from 1828, and we're covering topics such as the harms of lockdown are exceeding the gains, especially when it comes to school closures. These trade talks are a seminal moment for global Britain, and the question of what the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office could look like. So aid, trade and lockdown. First of all, let's go across to you, Mark. What does Dr. Raghib Ali have to say in his piece and what is your take on it? So this is the second article that Dr. Raghib Ali has written for Conservative Home. The first one was about his frontline experience of battling COVID-19. Um, he's a serious guy. He's, he's an honorary consultant in acute medicine at you know, Oxford University Hospitals Trust. He's a visiting research fellow at Oxford University in population health, and he's got direct frontline experience of this horrible disease. So he's not somebody who's talking about this just hypothetically, not somebody who takes it lightly, but he has come to the view that the harms of lockdown are now exceeding the gains from it. It's his view that, you know, if you were to have raised, lifted lockdown back in May, then actually that would have been a mistake. The harms of doing that would have been, would have exceeded the benefits. Um, but that the evidence that he, as far as he can see, is now the case where now into the point at which raising, lifting lockdown would be more beneficial. And that's not just in terms of the social benefits, the psychological benefits, economic benefits, particularly the benefits to children, but actually in objective, he argues, benefits to health, well-being in terms of uh, years of life. And that, I think, is quite a remarkable thing, given that he's reviewing the evidence, he's looking at the SAGE documents, one thing he notes that really surprised me was that SAGE itself doesn't seem to have done or commissioned or studied a cost-benefit analysis of this policy uh, or updated it as it goes along. That is quite a shocking thing. If you consider the scale of the damage being done, the price that the nation chose to pay, I think that the public entered willingly into paying that price in order to stave off this pandemic, rightly so. But when you're doing that, you need to have some understanding of what your route out is and what the calculation really is to, to, to exit it. What's your exit strategy? And to have somebody like this asking that question, I think it's quite striking. I think for me, one of the things that was particularly striking was, was his payoff line. And he, there's a couple of sentences here I just want to read. Finally, of course, we are not primarily pro or anti-lockdowners. We are all pro-protecting lives and livelihoods and wanting to recover from this crisis as quickly as possible. And so we must put aside our differences, compromise and come together in the national interest. And, and for me, this is the interesting thing. And it, we had a, a quick chat before we started recording and you know, the juicy bits always get lost on, on the cutting room floor. But too often nowadays, we're asked to decide between X and Y. Pick a side, A or B, tribalism, pro or anti-lockdown. And the reality is there's so much nuance between the two. And if we're going to get to a place where we've got more grown-up political discourse, we need to recognise that. Now, my, my sympathies broadly are, are with the, you know, let's get rid of lockdown as soon as possible. And it's not from a, uh, a harsh capitalist, big corporation perspective. I, I just think that the damage that we're doing to the economy will have a ripple effect on people's lives and livelihoods, on employment and unemployment, on sickness and health, right the way across the piece. So the sooner we can ease back into normal life, as far as I'm concerned, the better. What do you think in your, uh, your working from home situation there, Alan? Well, I, I think to pick up on that, I think agree with that. And I think, but I think to pick up on something Mark said about that 
point about the kind of cost benefit and the ongoing cost benefit analysis of lockdown. I think there is a quite a significant criticism there, not just of SAGE, um, because you know SAGE is the Medical um, Epidemiology Advisory Council, but also the government, of, of, of what was the metrics to get us out of this. I think there's been a real lack of clarity and, and frankly, lack of communication as to how this is actually, what are the rules for getting us out of this? What are the metrics for what we're going to get out of this? A couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of talk about, you know, um, a... Joint, the Joint Biosecurity uh, Task Force um, having different levels. It was announced, you know, recording today on Friday, it was announced for moving from four to three uh, in terms of uh, the, the spread of the disease. But we're still, see it's all of this seems very arbitrary. It seems to come out of nowhere. And, you know, we've yet to see a kind of a sense of grip on the communication. And I'm not sure that's down to, entirely down to SAGE or any particular modelers. I think that comes very clearly from number 10 and to, to the wider government. Yes, I agree. And actually, you know, part of that is also going to be made worse by the fact that this process becomes more complicated as you get into the question of uh, track and tracing potential local outbreaks, trying to find, identify hotspots as they've started doing, local lockdowns as you see developing in China, in Israel, and you know, various other countries doing things like that. That's politically and in constant, that's going to get more complicated. For example, if you're in a situation in which, as seems to be the case, the spread of the virus in London is extremely low in at the moment in terms of new cases being reported, but you're in a situation where other, perhaps more economically deprived parts of the country were to be told, you must go into local lockdown, uh, London can exit, but you can, can have a lighter lockdown, that causes political tensions, even if it's the right medical or scientific thing to do. It causes political tensions. People understandably you're concerned about unfairness and, and get frustrated at missed opportunities and uh, having to suffer more harm um, as well as tensions within a community if, if one business is identified as being the source for spread that causes tension too it's the responsibility of politicians as well as officials to manage that and to make it clear to people and it does concern me somewhat that that process doesn't seem to have started Mm. And of course, the government's sort of uh, newfound emphasis on the science is not as clear cut as they would have us believe, or, or indeed as we might have believed in the first instance, because you, know, you get four scientists in a room and you've got five opinions on some of these things. Anyhow, let's draw a line under that one, guys, and go to the piece by Matthew Lesh um, for CapEx. It says the trade talks are a seminal moment for global Britain. And you know, in these weekly reviews, we've been touching on trade talks a lot, and I don't see uh, that subsiding anytime soon. One of the things I really like about CapEx is they have these three little takeaways uh, right at the top. And as far as they're concerned, the, the keynotes are the real price for a UK-Australia deal is not just goods, non-tariff barriers and uh, the third one is that free trade isn't always popular but as far as capex and matthew lesh are concerned that will come as no surprise to you guys free trade is still emphatically the right thing to pursue what was it that caught your eye about this piece Alan? it was exactly our third point and um, which i think is really important i mean we you know we've talked about free trade um, and before and we, uh, in different angles but i think one of the things that really struck me about this is you know, it's been very easy for people to proclaim themselves as you know uh, fans of free trade and to say we need a much more free trading model and you know we and we've lots of people who who are say call themselves ardent free traders um, and that might be true but we're also about to head into free trade is not a costless exercise you know it, it does it 
brings huge benefits, but in certain limited areas, it can it can bring costs. And you know what we're going to now start seeing is is having to address that. You know whether there's industries and sectors they're not going to be winners out out of free trade, or certainly not going to be winners out of free trade in the short term. And will that mean we will start seeing a change in how we approach free trade? You know, we, will advocates of free trade suddenly start to uh, bow to kind of you know self interests across the country? You know, will we see certain sectors getting kind of special deals which previously we wanted no special deals suddenly? You know, certain sectors of the economy may become, um, you know, critical sectors that need protecting. And, you know, free trade is, you know, for, for 40 years has been, you know, for, in parts of the party and the conservative movement, a kind of a totem issue. And we're about to see how, you know, how committed a lot of people were to that particular policy. And particularly when it starts having impact on, uh, on certain sectors of the economy. Absolutely. And I think uh, another resonating you know, point in common with the previous article and with this one is that this is a question of somewhere where political argument has to be made. There is an opportunity to persuade people and to change people's minds. But all of us are in a form of infancy about trade negotiations. For more than 40 years, we've had no control of our own trade policy. Fine, you've seen ministers march up and down talking about fair trade and uh, talking about international obligations of economic growth and so on, which is lovely, but it's all been handled by the EU Trade Commissioner. And now, whether it's parliament or ministers or civil servants or journalists covering negotiations or voters, commentators, analysts, even quite large parts of the business community, frankly have spent an entire generation or more without any experience of how this particular process of negotiation works and there should be some lessons we can draw from the previous phase of Brexit negotiations I think. You saw this peculiar thing where uh, there's a phenomenon where in the UK you had particularly in, in parts of the press it must be said people who seemed completely willing to believe literally everything that Michel Barnier might say as if he had no agenda and was just a disinterested third party and completely unwilling to believe anything the British government was saying. The fact is that both are players in the game and there is a political and you know, public opinion element to that to, to that activity. It's a contact sport and people, I think, need to be aware of how you, how you go about this. Um, free trade in this country was once a defining, a truly mass movement in millions upon millions of people who were members of organisations campaigning for free trade. The Manchester Free Trade Hall being uh, somewhere that a lot of people were visited at party conferences um, in, in particular, you know, people were selling popular songs about free trade because it was recognised that it wasn't something that was hypothetical. It wasn't something that was um, a point of tension between corporations and people. It was something of direct benefit to individuals, to families, to communities. Um, it changed everything from the job opportunities that you and your children might have through to the prices in the shops. And that remains the case. But one of the damaging effects of not controlling our own trade policy for so long, and one of the reasons why it's important we took back control of this, is that you forget that, you lose that institutional knowledge. We've got a lot of learning to do. I'd just j jump in there, actually. I think that's a great point. And I think the taking back control piece is, is, um, is, is critical. Like, I think... You know, one of the huge benefits of Brexit is it allows us now to have, you know, to take control, to make these decisions ourselves. But one of the responsibilities now, I think, of, you know, not just, you know, all of us, whether politicians or, you know, citizens, is we've become better informed of, about these issues. We're going to have to try and find the nuances in this because, you know, in campaigns, things tend to be black and white. In, you know, as you say, like in no negotiations, you know, people take black and white positions, but actually, you know, generally the, the, 
the, the answer is to be found somewhere in between. And I think we're going to, you know, it's going to be a really interesting time for a lot of people as we have to kind of, you know, get better understanding of this, have better discussions about it. And um, I think it was interesting, I, you know, I used to find this being Irish, that a lot of people would, you know, you know, talk to me about like, well, what's Leo Varadkar doing on these trade on these Brexit negotiations? Isn't it terrible that he's opposing us? And you'd point out, well, what do you expect him to do? It's his he's there to represent, you know, his country. He's not there to make this any easier for anyone involved. It's it's you know, it's 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 a natural he's on the opposite side of the table. And I think we need to start getting a better understanding of that and, and actually getting better at being on the other side of the table ourselves. There's also an element to that, that question of political maturity about something, which is going to be about accepting the fact that some things we will get wrong or some things we'll do the right thing, hoping that it'll go well and the odds might be against us and might simply not work out. And we're going to need to learn as we go along. And I don't think that necessarily lends itself to the kind of Piers Morgan model of covering politics. If, if something doesn't immediately work out, then it's game over. Whereas in fact, it's another lesson. If you look at what happened in, say, New Zealand's agriculture sector, when they, uh, it was the Labour government in New Zealand, um, against its previous instincts, against its internal party's culture, against its own history, that eventually learned the lessons of some of the problems of protectionism and, and subsidy the really radical jump what 30 or more years ago now of completely reforming how that was done and that was risky but they they learned it after bitter experience and really that's one reason why you have these debates you can look at the evidence from elsewhere now and and, and try and learn up front or you can go through the bitter experience of trying things that are getting them wrong and, and then learning but that's all it's all getting somewhere it's all progress along the line Quick question for both of you guys before we move on to our third and final article. We're recording this on the 19th of June for broadcast on the 21st of June, which means the 31st of December is not that far away. How optimistic are you about the journey between now and then and us getting free trade deals, deals of some sort, whether it's a patchwork or a comprehensive solution? Uh, well, I'm not, not a trade expert, but yeah, I think there's, you know, I think you've got to, again, rely on lots of people's um, self-interest. You know, it's in the interest of, you know, the UK is this fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. You know, the EU is a big economic block. You know, I, I kind of trust in the same way as we kept, in the same way as we were told there wouldn't be a Brexit deal right up till the minute there was a Brexit deal. I kind of feel the same on these trade deals. There won't be a trade deal right up till we get, get a trade deal. Yes, I broadly agree with that. And I think the chances particularly with regard to the EU, have been improved by David Frost and Boris Johnson firmly holding their line in terms of saying they, they meant what they said in terms of that deadline. The fact is that deadlines, one of those lessons we've learned from making mistakes that I was just talking about, was that we learned from Theresa May that if you allow deadlines to slide, then talks continue to slide. If you apply a deadline, then you tend to secure, you're more likely to secure some kind of progress. Of course, it might be the case that what kind of deal is eventually agreed involves some costs, it might involve some sacrifice, or dare I say, even potentially some fudging of things. But yeah, I feel uh, more confident than I did before. There'll be some form of agreement. Again, that question of absolutism rears its head. You know, if, you're, if your position is currently that there won't, be any, there won't be any kind of agreement, then the likelihood is people currently saying that if there is an agreement, we'll switch to, well, this isn't the perfect agreement on absolutely everything. Well, that may, that may just be how life is. What do you think the final scenario will look like? I mean, we, we've had this um, 
we've had this sort of, is it going to be Canada or is it going to be Australia? And Australia seems to be a thin veneer for, for WTO. Uh, or is it going to be something else? What do you think? Short version, I, I don't know yet, to be honest with you. I, I, as, as Alan says, I'm, I'm not an expert on uh, trade policy. I, I think we'll learn a bit more as we go along with some of the um, kind of sector by sector discussions. It's also the case, of course, that where you know people use shorthand, different countries as shorthand to to imply a kind of broad feeling, whereas in fact, actually, a lot of these things can be agreed item by item. It may well be that when we reach the end of the year, some one issue or another may actually just be parked and then move on to agreement where you can have on, on things where they are on the same page. Any parting thoughts, Alan, before you go on to our final piece? No, I couldn't add to that. <laughs> <laughs> so the last piece is uh, 1828, written by Jeremy Hutton, entitled What Could the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office Look Like? And of course, uh, DFID merged with or merged into the FCO, depending on your perspective. Uh, I, I deliberately and slightly mischievously picked this one because uh, Alan sometimes uh, likes to dissent from me because I'm viewed as being uh, a bit on, I mean, it's slightly unfair, but viewed as being a right winger. And, and actually, one of the issues on which I could be characterised as being on the left, even though it's a completely arbitrary figure, is the 0.7% uh, for foreign aid. Now, I, I personally think that enlightened self-interest, uh, soft power and global diplomacy can go entirely hand in hand in an integrated fashion with doing good and helping some of the poorest people in the world. Because I don't think these are mutually incompatible goals. And, and whilst I'm sure one or both of uh, these guys are going to argue against the 0.7%, my challenge to both of you is, where would you fix it? Well, I think firstly, on, on the 0.7%, I, I simply think that uh, legislative targets or legislative guarantees of spending are a bad idea generally. I, I don't, don't think they're a very good way to do these. Often politicians tend to use them uh, as being effectively kind of press released by legislation, which is a misuse as far as I'm concerned of what Parliament and the civil servants who write legislation are meant to be for. It's a very costly way of announcing your uh, in, intentions on something. It's also slightly peculiar um, to tag it to you know, percentages of GDP or percentages of government spending, because what matters is actually what you spend in real, in actual cash terms, and how you spend it. And so, I, I just think that particular target doesn't doesn't quite work. If you ask the public, I, you know, it's obviously the case that people are often quite frustrated by where international development spending goes. I think they're less frustrated by what they might think of in a traditional sense as being aid however when you're talking about people who are in dire and pressing need from conflict or natural disasters i think uh, those you can see from the british public's donations voluntarily in addition to their taxes to, to major charitable appeals when there are natural disasters shows that people view that as something which is extremely deserving of their support i think people are very supportive of the of specific uh, evidence-based targeted uh, campaigns like mass vaccination as well, you know, a, a, a benefit. Um, but I'm, I am sceptical of the idea that the main, most important, the most important thing about international development spending should be this particular target. I don't think that actually necessarily adds anything um, on any front. Um, nodding. Well, so I, I, I'd slightly disagree with that. I think, so on one hand, I, this, I agree with the idea. I think in the same way as we um, 
in, in terms of taking back control. I, I think having a target that was set back in 2015 that is now legislated and that it would that that would require acts of parliament to overturn is and and is is wrong. I do think though a target's a good idea because I think what gets legislated, what gets targeted, gets measured, gets done. Um, and 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 one thing I would like to see is probably somewhere in between, whereas there would be a target for a lifetime of a parliament. I think there should always be a debate on these things. I think there is, and I think one of the good things about this different piece is that it, can t- it keeps the idea and the discussion around international trade um, um, alive. I think the merger of, of DFID into the FCO is, from a public's perspective, it's probably neither here nor there. I can't imagine too many voters. I've never heard a voter, certainly I'm, I've knocked on many doors, I've never heard a voter get high and mighty about um, the, the role of DFID, but they, you know, quite a lot of voters do know, respect and understand the importance of international, tra- uh, international aid. But I think there is something about having a target that keeps people focused on that. Um, it promotes, it allows a debate. I think what we're in is the worst of all possible worlds is a target that no one actually agreed to, but everyone's stuck with. Um, I think that's the, that's the challenge. But I generally think that because of the push on this, without targets, it's very, very easy for successive governments to eat away at, um, or success, successive years to eat away at, at international trade, or international aid, excuse me. And do you think this, this merger is going to be successful? Uh, you know, clearly when two government departments come together, there's going to be some consolidation, there'll be some turf wars, there'll be some differences of opinion and priorities, but, but can it work and, and will it be permanent? It can work. I think the first thing you could get from it is some savings. The fact is that if you talk to people who are in the Foreign Office or DFID in, in, in the last 15, 20 years, you will hear stories of duplication where a DFID office in a country finds it's doing the same things as, a, as, a, as an embassy in a country or chasing the same people. I think the recent government, you know, the, the last five years have seen that improve somewhat, but certainly under the heights of uh, Blair and Brownism, there was some competition in, in silly ways that wasn't very good for taxpayers and wasn't very good for aid recipients, but fulfilled spending happening, which is what Gordon Brown's more interested in as a measure of success. A lot of this is going to come down to the question of culture. You know, you hear this discussion in the last few days, suddenly people talk about keeping an independent diffid. Um, well, the government department is not meant to be independent. The government department, the Whitehall department, particularly the civil servants within it, are meant to follow the instructions and the direction of an elected government. And diffid, I think, has been quite unusual in, at times, viewing itself as more of a voice for not all charities, but for parts of the aid industry. Um, representing them to government and lobbying for particular things, which it ought not to have been doing. Um, If we can deal with that, that would be positive. But I would also be reluctant to see it take on the prevailing Foreign and Commonwealth Office culture, which often does the same thing, just in in different directions. Dominic Cummings famously argued, I think, to the Treasury Select Committee, that, that the Foreign Office had been wrong about every major uh, foreign policy issues since Bismarck, and he, he wasn't far off. And you know, there, there is a good argument to say this is an opportunity to shake up the FCO as much as it is to uh, deal with different. Well, there we go, chaps. Thank you so much. That's uh, enlightening, interesting, and, and fun. All that remains really is for me to thank our authors, Matthew Lesh, Dr. Regib Ali, and Jeremy Hutton, and the three digital media that we drew from today, Conservative Home, not just for uh, the article that we reviewed, but also for lending us their chief executive, um, 1828 and CapEx. 
all that remains is for me to ask you that if you enjoyed this, please subscribe. And to let you know that we've got another guest coming on next week, which is Matt Kilcoyne from the Adam Smith Institute. So we're going back to the neoliberals for next week. Thanks very much, Alan. Thanks very much, Mark. And thanks very much for everyone who is watching. Cheerio.